0: Greetings, Grapple fans, and welcome to another edition of Match of the Week within the Let Me Tell You Something canon. It's the show where myself, Lorca Mulling, your Let Me Tell You Something co host, or your other Let Me Tell You Something co host, Simon Cross. Discuss a match that we take it in turns picking from the history of professional wrestling. From what might have happened yesterday to what might have happened at the dawning of professionalised combat itself. If we can travel back in time and watch the gladiators in the Colosseum, But we're not talking about that. But we are talking about the Mid-South Coliseum. Hey. I genuinely didn't realise that was where that sentence was going to go. ha <laughs> ha. Sometimes I talk and words just fall out. But Simon, what words are you going to say now to describe the match that we are going to do and your pick for this episode?
1: We are looking at a hair versus hair steel cage match. So like just synergy of gimmicks between Jerry the King Lawler and Austin Idol. So this was your pick. Why was this your pick? Growing up, my knowledge of Jerry the King Lawler is a horny old man who's the excitable co-com to JR and then obviously as we've like talked more and more and as I've like read more and more about wrestling as a whole everyone talks about how over Jerry Lawler was in Memphis and like how much of a wrestling rock star kind of he was and I wanted to see what the fuss was about really so that's what's drawn me to picking a Jerry Lawler in
0: Memphis match And was there any particular reason you wanted to go with this one? Was its reputation preceding itself? Because obviously the other major candidate I'm assuming you thought about was one of the Andy Kaufman matches.
1: Andy Kaufman or a Terry Funk empty arena sort of brawl kind of thing. But no, I picked this one because I've heard the name Austin Idol. And I wanted to see what he was about as well. So it's kind of like a toother I've gone for here.
0: It's funny, one of the times I recently heard of Austin Idol was a clip from Jim Cornette's podcast where the co-host Brian Last suggested that if Vincent McMahon hadn't been able to get Hulk Hogan to come over from AWA and New Japan... Mm. to be the face of his nationwide expansion who were some of the obvious who were the better candidates to do it in hogan's place and the ones that everyone had always said was uh, Kerry von eric junkyard dog maybe even superfly jimmy snooker yeah wow would that have been a mistake? (laughs) <laughs> oh then again Junkyard Dog and, and <laughs> Kerry Von Erich would have been problematic in their own ways as well but one of the ones that he said is a name that never really gets brought up in enough that he thought could have been a a huge star was Austin Idol Yeah, and seeing him in this match you can understand why, he's not the tallest guy in the world he looks like he's maybe no. 6 foot ish, but you can tell the charisma, you can tell the showmanship And he's got a good look from whatever (laughs) not great quality camera or audio quality that we've got. Oh, yeah. You can tell that he had a great look for 80s wrestling. There was commentary, but I could not make out what it was saying at all. One of the things that the commentators kept doing was mentioning the manager of Austin Idol Ringside, but referring him to a slightly different name to what we would have known him as being from around this time. Which is Paul Heyman. Yep. At this point, we would know him as Paul E. Dangerously. But Lance Russell, the legendary Memphis commentator, was referring to him as Paul E. Dangerly. Yeah. Enough to the point that I think maybe that was his name uh, in this promotion. It's not that he just can't say dangerously. Yeah. I don't know if is a particularly hard in the Tennessee region. Because that doesn't really make sense, because the reason that he became known as Paulie Dangerously was because at the time he bore a slight resemblance to Michael Keaton's Johnny Dangerously character. So Dangerously should have been there from the start. Oh, okay, yeah. So, I don't know what that's all about.
1: Yeah, well, you don't see a lot of him for the most of this match, apart from rattling the cage door.
0: Well, that's because, as the match starts, Ossneider will not engage because he said that the contract stipulated that Paulie Dangerously was allowed at ringside because this is the steel cage setup that's not your typical steel cage setup of this period. Do you want to describe what makes this cage just slightly different? Yeah, you've got a lot of apron and floor space around
1: it. Kind of imagine... It's not quite as big as Hell in a Cell, but imagine like a roofless Hell in a Cell and you're pretty much there.
0: Well, when Jim Cornette pitched the Hell in a Cell concept to the WWE, it was him merging two ideas together. That of the perimeter on the outside allowing more freedom of movements. Yeah. And also potential for certain things you could do in the match that you couldn't necessarily in a steel cage match that we'll get to. But also then adding the... Ceiling element from war games, yeah. And one of the other things about this cell is it is not sturdy in its no. place. There's a moment where I think Austin Idol rams Jerry into one of the walls like the wall opposite where the door is, yeah. And it's going closer and closer to the front row. <laughs> it moves. This thing could shift about, it's not oh, yeah, yeah, laid down. It looks like it's just Harris
1: fencing basically. <laughs> What, what struck me about the match itself, there is a great line that I'd like to mention from the commentator, one of the few ones I could make out when Idol is cutting his promo at the start saying Paul should be allowed in. is like, that's a clause that lives purely in his imagination, which I thought was a really good line.
0: Yeah, Lance Russell, I think a lot of people see him as one of the great commentators of all time because his reactions to everything was very natural. Yeah. He wasn't bombastic, but at the same time, he wasn't as monosyllabic- I mean, everyone loves Gordon Soley, but the thing that strikes me about Gordon Soley is he seems as amazed at someone doing a headlock takedown as he does at someone grabbing a wooden chair and turning it into a spike. Yeah. (laughs) Trying to ram it into his opponent's eye. It's all treated with the same measured response of... Now, maybe that's to show some sort of journalistic impartiality or some measured response on... The presentation of it as a sport?
1: Yeah, to be like a sports broadcaster.
0: Oh, yeah, I don't think it was really until John Madden came along that sports broadcasting became a bit more bombastic in America mm. to what we know it as now, where everyone's... They've all got the same voice, but they're <laughs> doing it with a very bombastic way of saying it. You're
1: like your Pat McAfee
0: brand of yes, now yes. in sporting all the UFC commentators, which were Mark Goldberg. I don't know who the new one is now, but they do all have their deep, booming voice. And away we go! What's also funny watching this match, the thing about Jerry Lawler was he worked within his own territory. He was the craftiest wrestler of that era in the 80s. Yeah. He didn't live a hard and fast lifestyle in the drinking and drug sense. He is straight edge he never drank alcohol at all in his life i think oh okay yeah he's just not that kind of guy doesn't drink doesn't smoke doesn't do drugs never was interested in that because he bought into the memphis territory very early on yeah he didn't really have to travel he did occasionally but for the most part from the late 70s through to the early 90s he was able to stay bedrocked in memphis do the weekend tv shows and the Monday night show at the Coliseum, which would attract big crowds almost every week, Mm. until it didn't. And the fact that he was able to cycle through so many opponents, because basically the idea of Memphis was no one really stayed there as a territory like they would in Mid-South, Texas, or whatever, for a year or whatever. Yeah. It was a come and go as quickly as you can, really, because one of the things that Memphis was famous for is very bad payoffs. (laughs) When Jerry Lawler made his pay-per-view debut for the WWE at the 1993 Royal Rumble, have you heard the story of what was uh, greeted to him? No. Someone was able to get hold of his crown, and it was passed around the locker room, and plenty of people left a deposit oh. as wrestlers were famous for doing back in those days. Right. Apparently, he got quite full by the end. <laughs> There's an image for you guys. Mm. To Jim Cornette, Jerry Lawler is essentially the greatest of all time, as far as a worker, in getting an audience in, drawing them in, either as a heel or as a face, because he did have runs within Memphis where he wasn't the top face. He would have times every once in a while where he would turn heel. Yeah. Although during the majority of the time when he was working both WWF and Memphis from 93 to about 98, when the territory kind of died at that point... Mm. he was usually a face in Memphis and a heel in WWF, which made for a fun dynamic. Jerry Lawler, I, I can get where he's coming from because he does so much with so little. Yes. He's clearly not an amazing athlete. Yeah. I think in this whole match, all the moves that he does is like punches, kicks occasionally. elbow drops, but he doesn't spring off the turnbuckle. It's more elbow falls. Yeah. Atomic drops and... driver. That's what he built it all around. In many ways, I do wonder, because so much of how he moved, if boxing had become a work mm. in the time period that wrestling had become a work, he could have been a great boxing champion. Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. Like, he, he loves a jab as well. He throws amazing punches. He's He has yeah. got one of the best punches. I remember Becky Lynch apparently approached him when she was turning into the man. Yeah. And asked him to help her with her punches because mm. she can't throw great punches still to this day, really. Yeah.
1: There's not many great great worked strikers in general.
0: I think what works with the punch, because I always love Bret Hart's punches as well. <laughs> surprise, surprise. I was going to say. But Jerry Lawler would do it differently. Whilst Bret Hart, what Bret Hart would do was he put a hand on the head as a target. Yeah. And I think, essentially, it's like how you do the the head butt, He would thump his thumb. Yeah. So that meant he was as close to the head without hitting the head. And what's important also was how well he timed the stomping of the feet to go with the mm. punch. It's not even just that you just stomp. You actually time it to perfect precision. Yeah. And that it makes sense. Logically, really, the whole point about the punch is that you, in boxers, they're doing it right from the bottom of their feet. So you should have your feet planted when you throw a punch. Yeah. Not literally... You drive upwards. Power comes from the hips. Yeah. Unlike Deontay Wilder sometimes, you do need to have your feet planted. Yeah. Yeah. But what Brett does and what worked punches do usually is that their feet are sort of off the ground when they're making the punch because they're hitting the mat to signify yeah. impact. Whilst Bret goes overhead, Jerry Lawler goes under. And it's like it's an mm. almost like a Kane Undertaker thrust to the throat, but it's a yeah. closed-hand fist uppercut. But he also mixes it up with jabs and, and everything else. Yeah. What that's a testament to... Yeah, in terms of, like, his limited moveset, is the character
1: work. Because if you get yourself over enough, you don't need to do all... Like, that's the whole point. You get yourself over to do less physical wrestling sometimes.
0: I don't know if he would credit it to him, but before he became the immortal Hulk Hogan, yeah, when he was just the Hulk going around the territories, I think his time in Memphis was probably a very big inspiration for him because you can see so much of the hulk hogan formula in this right down to jerry lawler starting to no sell yeah and instead of hulk hogan pointing the finger with jerry lawler it was him putting the, strap the straps down, down baby and the opponent selling it like oh god no no <laughs> <laughs> like, i done messed up which is what a would do yeah and so i love that as and i think hogan may have seen a lot of that in it because Famously, one of the, another reason that Jerry Lawler would piss everyone off is that because everyone basically cycled around Memphis at some point, yeah. that meant that Jerry booked himself to beat them. Mm. And so when they would do the TV spots, they would constantly show montages of Jerry Lawler beating whoever were like the top guys. And so you better believe that footage of him pinning Hulk Hogan yeah. was shown on a near constant loop. There's a reason that when Hulk Hogan was going to do his big show... For a reality show. It wasn't meant to be Paul White the Big Show, which was who he ended up working. It was meant to be Jerry Lawler. Yeah. Because you know Hogan, he wants to get that win back. (laughs) (laughs) He's got a little black book somewhere on a list of names. Pretty much the only reason The Ultimate Warrior was brought in in 1998. Oh, God. All of the mid-90s, Hogan was desperately trying to get Yokozuna to come over to WCW. Yeah. He needs things to be even, (laughs) essentially. He needs
1: things to be even in his head. Yes. Hence why we saw the Shawn Michaels performance we did at SummerSlam.
0: Yes. Well, there's there's other elements to that. And also yeah. it's Shawn. We'll have to talk about that match at some point. What year was that match? Was that 2005? 2000... It's either 2005 or 06 because the following
1: year was Hogan-Orton.
0: Yeah, 05 sounds right. And so if it was 05. I don't know if this show will be going on for 2025, but if it is, then that might be a good one to do then. It's like yeah. the 20th anniversary of it. But this one, back in 1987 as well. So this is still at the height of Hulkamania and within Memphis, within this one major city or this one state. This wrestling outpost. Jerry Lawler's still top dog. Yeah. Because there's a huge crowd there for this show. And like I said, this is a venue that put on a show every Monday nights. And they're rabid as well. They are really into this. Yeah, there's a pitch that's consistent pretty much from the start to the finish. Yeah.
1: I think Idol works as a great foil for Face Lawler as well because he his begging off in this is amazing.
0: Yeah. Memphis was seen as the weakest working promotion because it was lots of silly gimmicks. It was very WWF-esque. I think, again, that might be one of the reasons why Vincent man apparently likes Jerry Lawler a lot and he's like the only guy that he won't yell at on the commentary booth or anything Mm. because maybe he sees a kindred spirit in jerry lawler who has a similar vision of what pro wrestling should be not even should be but could be if you had the ambition yeah jerry Lawler was doing with andy kaufman in 1982 what vince then went on to try and do with mr t and others in 1984 85 yeah
1: there's a quote from freddie prince jr on his talk is jericho episode where vince apparently goes to him wrestling's vaudeville and Jerry Lawler, his perception of wrestling could be seen as a bit vaudeville. When he talked about how he shot the Kamala vignettes before Kamala's debut, that was very much like vaudeville, look at the man from the tropics kind of thing. Whether that's aged like wine or like milk is uh, for the listener's own moral compass to the side, I
0: guess. Wouldn't be appropriate if it age like milk? Because that'd be the hardest beverage that Jerry Lawler seems willing to consume. <laughs> Fair point. mm Although, if it's age, then Jerry's probably not that interested in it. <laughs> <laughs> so, it mostly follows your standard steel cage formula. And as I was saying, the Memphis style was seen as the lightest style along with the Northeast. Yeah. And you can see it because, as we were saying, not much is done, not many bumps are there. They milk everything. That's the key. Brawling, selling, and playing to the crowd. That is yeah. the, the key to Memphis
1: the one and arguably the two biggest bumps are done by the referee (laughs) yeah and what bumps they are it's it's possibly the best ref bump
0: especially the follow-up pile driver as well he gets spiked it is funny how within memphis the pile driver is what almost all of it's built around yeah if you get hit with the pile driver that's when you're in trouble and that if you're not hurt by the pile driver that's a big deal like Jerry Lawler hit Road Warrior Hawk with the pile driver, and the Hawk stood up and no sold it, and that was huge. Jerry Lawler obviously hit Andy Kaufman with the power driver, and that led to him wearing the neck brace and setting up the whole thing on the Letterman show. Yeah, funny though, Jerry is the local hero because he doesn't—he doesn't have a bad look, but he doesn't have a good look. Yeah, he, there's a bit of a tummy there. He just looks like a bloke. Yeah, but maybe that's part of his appeal. But then he's wearing. But he's a king. But he's a king. Well, I wonder with that as much it's the Memphis-Elvis connection. Yeah, 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 The king of wrestling and just Jerry takes it a little bit more literally with an actual Mm. crown. Although he never seemed to wear the crown. He he more just carried it with him like it was a symbolic championship. He was the Mm. king of the region. You know, he's the ace, although I know an ace is not a king. An ace is actually higher than a king. (laughs) But there we go. Yeah. What I like as well, and it, it speaks to what you mentioned earlier about Lawler
1: making sure he gets his wins or, you know, his TV footage of him winning, is after the ref is knocked down and pile-drived, he gets two very long visual pinfalls afterwards. So even though, and spoiler it, he loses the match, that there's the visual of him winning very much. Not unlike uh, Randy Orton versus Hulk Hogan at, uh, at SummerSlam. Uh, Randy got a very long visual
0: pinfall in that. That's them that's like Hogan making a concession. Uh, yeah and everything. I mean I remember at WrestleMania six actually, Hogan and the old warrior both got visual three counts on the other one without the ref there. But it was Hogan that got the first one. There's significance behind all those sort of things. There's hmm. decisions that are made. But to be fair, that makes sense for this storyline. Because it is meant to be like the greatest injustice in the history of Memphis wrestling. Because this is Jerry Lawler losing what's essentially always been the blow-off feud. It's what I was saying, how with Hangman Page now, at some point in the future, I hope that AEW will book a storyline along those lines and it not end the way people are expecting. Mm. The equivalent of Hangman Page actually losing this match to Kenny Omega because it's a twist. And then you're like, well, we've never been in this territory before what happens now yeah so the idea of jerry lawler i i don't have any footage that i could find immediately on youtube but him coming out the next saturday show with a shaved head yes yeah. the best as is always the case with hair versus hair matches the follow-up head shaving very often doesn't seem to go very well at all <laughs> no that wrestlers are not barbers no but i think it's also just the clippers they usually get and not that good then yeah. wrestlers very traditionally have very long hair, which is very hard to shave bald yeah. to begin with. It's like doing a lawn. You've got to trim it, then you got to mow it. <laughs> I think Jim Cornette thinks this is what wrestling should be. Yeah. 8,000 local people packed into the arena to see the show that's been built up for by interviews and promos on TV. And everything's made to make you want to go to the next one. Mm. That's what wrestling is in his eyes. And in 1997, that's what it was. And It's beautiful. And these fans are just watching it because they love Jerry Lawler. They hate Austin Idol and Paulie Dangerously. And now Tommy Rich. Lovely out of nowhere as well. Because the camera... Some, what I don't like about uh, the out of nowhere is
1: sometimes like, the camera in certain promotions will like see the guy peeking out. And it's like,
0: oh, who's this on commentary? Whereas this is like, fucking hell, he's here. <laughs> well, we've talked about that. We want We need to do a whole episode about how you film pro wrestling. And there's either... A wrestler coming into the pre-prepared shots. Pre-prepared, there's a tautology. Or the camera reacting. That's the thing. The camera should be reactive. Yeah. Because this is all supposed to be happening in the moment. Yeah, this is all meant to
1: be like spontaneous.
0: I mean, it's limited footage as well. I mean, this wouldn't have been a pay-per-view, so my guess is that they filmed it for a VHS release, maybe, or they filmed it so that they could show footage on the TV show. Yeah. I don't know if it was maybe closed circuits or whatever in 1997, but I don't recall Memphis ever putting on pay-per-views.
1: Mm.
0: It's, it's just a great spectacle. Altogether, yeah, and that's what Jerry Lawler gave. I mean, my first real experience and exposure of Jerry Lawler was watching the SummerSlam 93 video, mm. and that was Memphis Chaos being brought into a usually more not stulted but but the rarefied era of WWF, yeah, where things are booked to be booked at that point a bit more consistently. That is fairly traditional booking. Of a wrestling show. It's one match, then the other match, then the other match. Interview segments and whatever. But the SummerSlam 93 thing between Jerry Lawler and Bret Hart... Was like this mishmash of two different matches... Angles taking place before, during and afterwards. Yeah. And just this big showcase over 30 minutes... Instead of it being two entrances... 15 minute match and then the exit and then you might talk to them backstage afterwards or whatever and that's what Jerry Lawler brought in I'm guessing all these things have been done in the Memphis show in the past where he comes out with an ice pack on his knee on crutches yeah claiming that he was gonna wrestle Bret Hart after saying all that shit <laughs> for months and you know months in the build up. because that's the thing about Jerry Lawler he gets people to care yes and one of the other things he does great one of the things I think great wrestlers can do as far as great workers is make you believe that their feud that they're in right now is all that matters to them. Mm. They want nothing more than to defeat the person that they're booked in this program with. CM Punk gives off that and en- has always given off that energy with everything yeah. I've followed him from the first one that I really paid attention to which was him against Raven in Ring of Honor. Whenever he got a proper when he ever could get his teeth sunk into a feud, you got that sense of he really cares about this and he he needs to beat this person more than anything. Mm eddie kingston kind of does that yeah the eddie king well that was why like, with just what three weeks of builder the eddie kingston cm punk program might be my favorite thing that aew did this year yeah and that's what jerry lawler does as well whether he's a heel and it's like he hates that person and he hated Bret hart you felt that mm. or he's a face and he's been wronged and he wants to get his revenge or it's been going all around with both guys at different points And been best of friends and worst of enemies, which was him and Bill Dundee, who was really the only other constant of this territory. That that's what Jerry Lawler does. And it just gets, you know, you wonder what the follow up would be from this. Yeah. It's not just that he has one enemy. He's got three because he hates poorly dangerously. And boy, did he hate poorly dangerously for real. (laughs) Yeah. Around this time. I think he legit broke Jerry Lawler's jaw. And he claimed, that he revealed later on in the Legends of Wrestling Roundtable that it was on purpose. Oh. He hates Austin Idol. He hates Tommy Rich. And it's so funny with Tommy Rich. He's another one we need to do stuff about as well because he is a legit former NWA world champion. Yeah. In hindsight, everyone makes the stories and then there's, you know, quite specific legends and theories and rumours as to how he even got that title shot in the first place. Right, okay. That's never been founded, because the fact of the matter is, in the early 80s, Tommy Rich was a hot, young, babyface. And after this feud, after he won the world title from Harley Race and dropped it back to him, he then engaged in a feud with Buzz Sawyer that's seen as one of the great feuds of that time. And then when they had their war to settle the score at the Omni, Mm. that being found and put on the WWE Network was a huge fucking deal. So Tommy Rich is maybe someone that needs unfairly got lost, like Buddy Landell, I suppose, in that way. Yeah. But he kept going. It's just that he would sink further and further down the card and down in, in importance. But maybe this run in Memphis was his last great main event angle and that he went from the good-looking young babyface and he was able to adapt in good-looking in 1981 wrestling
1: <laughs> yeah it, it, into like a uh, heel house who yeah. helps the bigger heel shithouse and
0: very energetic as well it's funny because it's like he's channeling that baby face fire energy into more of a wild madman heel yeah manicness in this one the whilst Austin Idol thinks he's the great star of the of wrestling and that he's like the top dog on an arrogance level Rich is just almost in that You could almost seem like a Terry Gordy...
1: Rabid hatred kind of thing.
0: And when a fan tries to climb over the cage to attack them, Tommy Rich climbs up to the other side of the cage and is beckoning him on to to come and get him.
1: That's a great visual. That clip, in a nutshell, shows how much of a fever pitch they (laughs) are Jerry and Austin had cultivated. This match isn't about the moves that's in this match. It's about the fact that there is a payoff to all this hype.
0: But not the payoff they expected, because they were saying every time Jerry Lawler wins, a, as a steel cage match, he wins it. Yeah. Every time Jerry Lawler's put his hair on the line, he's won it. So it's almost taking that, almost like the equivalent of smart mark knowledge of how wrestling works. And subverting expectations. Subverting expectations, but not in a in a postmodern. Everyone in the crowd knows that this is wrestling, and and there is kind of that's one of the funny things about AEW in a way that it seems like it's smart wrestling fans trying to go back to what they were. Yeah, but being given a good enough product for them to say it's almost like they're they're going kayfabe as a mark of respect for the quality of the work. Yeah, yeah, I I, could, I see where yeah yeah I know where you're coming th- from. That. That's why they boo MJF, even though they all think MJF's a great worker. They're like. But he's such a good worker, we need to honour that by booing. Yes. Whereas in this territory, it's that's the bad guy, boo. Mm. I'm not saying that like the majority of people in the crowd believe that wrestling was real still at that point. But definitely a higher proportion did than do now. Correct. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and those that even did know that it wasn't real or suspected that it wasn't real still got energized by what they were seeing because there was nothing realistic about this match at all no (laughs) i mean i think it's important that jerry lawler comes out to the rocky theme tune because that is like the boxing is rocky boxing essentially the, the punches are rocky punches I think maybe that's what Jerry Lawler sees himself partly as. Like a combination of Rocky and Apollo Creed, in a way. Mm. So, yeah, I don't really have much more to say. I I wish that there was as well kept a tape Library of Memphis as there is of world-class and, uh, you know, Georgia wrestling, world championship wrestling in the NWA. But, unfortunately, there isn't. Because a lot of the stuff that they did, they literally would tape over their own tapes to save up (laughs) on money. Because Jerry Lawler was a stingy bastard
1: yeah
0: <laughs> in more ways than one
1: and a lot of it's just lost to the annals of time now unfortunately
0: very sad but what there is he does actually have a classic memphis wrestling show on on saturday mornings and they do use some of that footage i think that was one that was used and jerry Lawler will introduce it yeah with bill dundee sometimes as well i think it's on the cw of all places oh, okay I'm never quite sure how American TV works but it's like your NBC affiliate in Wisconsin. Right, right. So right. like they get the they get the big shows but then there's local time that's filled up by local TV or whatever else that, that local station wants to buy. Yeah. Essentially. And
1: like that's where the local news is.
0: Yeah, but that's also where all the syndication people and that's why they make such huge money your Oprah Winfrey's and that because they're making hundreds of deals Yeah. instead of just one deal they can make hundreds of them. They get percentages from all of that. And just let it all rolling. Well that's why I don't know if like, because we were talking about if the Premier League would ever do what the WWE does and just put its whole product up and they own it and they provide the service and I think, that's what I used to always suspect they would do but now I think it's more they will follow what the WWE has shifted towards and say let's make ourselves a product for other people to have to risk on. Yeah. So we get nothing but payment. For offering a service rather than having to give a load more services and try and make a profit off of it ourselves. Yeah, it makes sense because we are in a world now where content creation is
1: key and, like, live sport, especially, that's like the big price because that's not a thing people can binge. That's not a thing people can, like, catch up on. That's in the world where watching TV that's sent out across the airwaves as opposed to, like, binge watching a box set. Live sports, the linchpin, like keeping that sort of thing going in a way.
0: That's why WWE have been making more money than ever with the worst product they've ever produced. And that's how Tony Khan was finally able to justify his secret hidden dream project on an economic front. Yeah. That he'd never been able to do before. But we can talk about that more as we go along the lines. There have always been crafty minds in wrestling that find a way to make the most out of what they have. Mm. And Jerry Lawler is one of them. Oh, yes. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's been... That was a fun one. That was a good choice, Simon. You made a good pick there. Hooray! A broken clock tells the right time. Oh, time. come on! <laughs> <laughs> Why you gotta attach a cloud to every silver lining, you bastard? So, when this episode comes out, it will have just been Winter is Coming, the AEW event. Yep. And so then we will find out a couple of days later if The melts has given that particular match that we're expecting he might give it five stars or higher so we don't know at this point yes but if there are no five star matches in the interim the next let me tell you something should hopefully be coming out on christmas eve eve the 23rd of december and as is the case as is tradition we will use that date as the date to do our 2021 in review (laughs) where we'll have a lot of fun talking about the year that happened before but even more fun remembering what both of us predicted would happen in the year before.
1: And loading the chamber for twenty twenty two in review where we make more. Somewhat crazy, somewhat not crazy. Well, depending on it, like which person's predicting them. Depending on which Yeah, I was about to say
0: depending be. on which person's talking at that point. <laughs> yeah, I thought I'd beat you to that particular punch. <laughs> <laughs> so assuming there are no five star matches in the interim that's what we'll be talking about regardless of if there are like two five star matches or whatever the latest of our 2021 in review episode will come out will be on the 30th of december yes but that's what we've got then coming up it's either a five star match or 2021 in review next but until then simon if people want to get in touch with you how can they do so they can get in touch with me on twitter
1: where i'm so known as simon cross free free for the number of dirty dirty diddlers shaving jerry lula's head
0: Okay, I was worried about that for a second. <laughs> I, I don't know if they were diddlers. I, I, I think you've got. Of... In the
1: heel the, 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 the sense. Though. When
0: I think diddlers, I think a very specific thing and the thing that Jerry Lord has been accused of. <laughs> and to the best of my knowledge, none of Austin Idol, Poorly Dangerously, or Tommy Rich have been. I mean, yeah. Tommy Rich has been accused of other things, but, you know. Hey ho. My name is Lorcan Monum. That's L O R C A N M U L L A for the A, the second letter of Lawler. N as in the third letter in King. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxd. If you put an at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. Lmtyspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. If you fancy throwing us paupers some shekels, then you can do so by going to our patreon.com slash lmtyspod. And if you fancy dropping us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we'll appreciate that too. But there's nothing left to say at this point, other than my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great week. Until the next week.